Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Today we're talking cyclocross, a discipline that is as demanding as it is rewarding and educational. Because there are so many variables in cross, athletes are constantly being challenged and consistently faced with new opportunities to learn and progress. Whether that's the engine or the skills, whether that's strength, power, finesse, or off-the-bike prowess. In cyclocross, you're always on the edge of something, and that's the focus of today's episode. The short-duration, high-intensity nature of cyclocross sharpens the pointy end of fitness. Cyclocross also offers countless opportunities to improve many technical aspects of cycling. Want to exponentially improve your handling skills? Cyclocross is the answer. Always wanted to feel more, quote, at one with your bike? Yep, cyclocross wins again. Today we'll hear from one of the greats of American cyclocross, three-time national champion Stephen Hyde, a longtime member of the iconic Cannondale Cyclocross World squad who now races for the Steve Tilford Foundation racing team. We talk about all aspects of the sport, from dealing with the weather to skills acquisition to tactics and race day prep. We also hear from Alec Donahue, who once coached Hyde and who specializes in cyclocross coaching, as well as Dr. William Adams, who speaks to preparing for cold weather. All that and more today on Fast Talk. Cross is here, cross never left. Let's make you fast. Fast Talk Laboratories is pleased to announce Pathways. Pathways are a new way to explore sport science concepts, master new skills, and solve training challenges. For each pathway, Trevor, Chris, and I have selected expert interviews, workshops, and articles that explore a specific topic, like interval training or sports nutrition. Each pathway is a deep dive that will help you gain mastery of a new aspect of training science. Think of our pathways as a masterclass for endurance sports. Discover your next path forward in your training. See our new pathways at FastTalkLabs.com. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen Hyde. It's a pleasure to have you on Fast Talk. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So to to those out there that need a little reminder, uh, Stephen is a three-time national champion in cyclocross. He won in Hartford, which I raced at. Very snow snowy conditions, icy conditions, some some nasty ruts, as I remember. And then you went out to Reno, which was uh, quite dry, completely different uh, conditions, high altitude as well. And then uh, Louisville in 2019, which was very muddy, a lot of uh, elevation change on the course, slick conditions, some ruts as well. I raced there. Um, Nasty, uh, but various conditions. You've you've mastered it all. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. I can remember a few, definitely. Um, I probably have some uh, a couple of choice words for uh, Worlds and, and Valkenburg a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> that'll be for another time. But, uh, you know, cyclocross is such an interesting uh, sport. And I say sport as opposed to, like, uh, discipline uh, because it, it's just so different. It's, you know, it, it's, it's always... Um, 
so demanding in so many different ways. You know, you, you can never really train for the one specific thing that cyclocross really is because it, it is just, it's just so dynamic. I mean, w- when I think about like a super dynamic race, you know, Worlds at Walkenberg, you know, it was one of those just on the edge of freezing, <laughs> raining for days and days and days, uh, weeks up to it, super hilly, lots of wind, and just a course that would not stop changing. You know, you, you look at the tactics people were using and, and those that went out really hard early on <laughs> detonated, you know, look at Vanderpool, you know, the, the favorite who was supposed to go out and, and absolutely dominate. And he, he's so good in these, in these hilly fast courses or hilly sloppy courses or flat sloppy courses. But on that day, he just couldn't, couldn't kind of get out of his own way. And it, it really required a technique driven patient race. And I, I personally remember that being one of my best rides, you know, it wasn't necessarily my best placing, but it was one of my best rides in the way that, you know, all things considered, I kept it together well. Uh, my plan went really well. I changed things on the fly, adapted and suffered <laughs> to a very large degree, but never gave up. That's like lacrosse on a, on a, on a really bad day. And, and there's, there's so many other, races especially early season where we can look at just like a hot grass overheating punchy kind of death march for 60 minutes you know i know it's not a long race but there's a, there's a lot of damage that can be done in 60 minutes so yeah so that that's the interesting thing about cyclocross especially today uh which it, where the the season seems to be getting longer and starting earlier so it's not just a a nasty weather in the autumn months type of discipline or sport anymore. It's you have to come in um, and be able to deal with heat depending on where you live in the world. But even the, even the racers starting um, their seasons uh, early in Europe are dealing with some pretty hot conditions. So you, you're, you've got a good point there that it isn't just about dealing with wet, cold conditions. It's sometimes about dealing with hot, heavy conditions when you're really going hard um and maybe choking on some dust and uh the 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 taste of blood that is a natural part of any early cross race is only exacerbated by the taste of dust in your mouth so <laughs> yeah they complement each other well that's for sure yeah right <laughs> right um it's it's interesting too because uh looking back at cyclocross in, in terms of its history it was in some ways meant to be a good training session in a nasty time of year. So it's short, it's intense, you stay warm. Um, but it now has this allure. The, the bad weather is sort of what attracts certain people. Um, would you agree with that, that it has some amount of charm for a select number of people? And And if so, if you agree with that, why do you think that is? Is it just kids like to play in mud? <laughs> I mean, some do for sure. It's interesting, you know, I mean, cyclocross attracts so many different people. You know, you want to say it's like this, it only attracts these like masochistic um, uh, lunatics, <laughs> which it does. But there's just something so appealing to me personally about just being kind of the last man standing. Um, uh, you know, about just kind of enduring. It's not a long race. I mean, these races are anywhere from 30 to, you know, uh, 
hour 15, right? 30 minutes to an hour 15. And so 75 minutes for a world cup isn't that long. I mean, like it, it's not even as long as a cross country mountain bike race, you know, at 90 minutes. Um, but it's just those like repeated punches, 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 uh, falling off your bike. You know, how many times can you adapt? How many times can you race a course, uh, a lap that, that changes and degrades over, over, you know, eight, nine, 12 laps. Um, you know, for me, it's always just been like, a an interest in doing something that shouldn't be done to begin with. You know, I, I grew up as a BMX guy. Um, I did a lot of street, you know, uh, skate park, um, dirt jumps, you know, we, we built our, we kind of built our own fun, right? Like we had, <laughs> I had friends with tractors. So we built very large jumps. I had, uh, you know, my dad was a carpenter. So we, we built very large ramps, <laughs> mostly very haphazard ramps, right? Like, uh, I worked at a print shop for a while and, and we would take, um, pallets and just, and just kind of like put things together on the side of a building and absolutely no one should ride on them. They're totally dangerous, but we did it and you adapted to those things. So so part of the appeal to, about cyclocross to me is that you have this like repetition element to it where you get to kind of session things, right? Like think about going to a skate park. You go to a skate park and you just session the same thing over and over and over and over. And it, it might be kind of boring to some people, but when it finally clicks for you, you realize like, oh, wow, that was worth it. And, and I kind of slowed down and did that. You know, it's the skills acquisition scenario that with cyclocross, you get like nine laps to try it over and over and over. And oftentimes it's that one lap that you do something right that really matters. So for me, just the idea of like, <laughs> this shouldn't be done. This is a bike that shouldn't exist. Uh, this is whether <laughs> that we should all be inside for. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why that's appealing to me, but I love it. At the end, when I'm standing there, win or lose, it's just like, yeah, that was... That was interesting. <laughs> Let's try again tomorrow. <laughs> well, so my understanding of the the history of cyclocross, this is the way it was explained to me, is this it was invented in Belgium. And basically they were trying to figure out what do we do in November, December, January when it's cold, it's wet, it's snowy and miserable. And you don't want to be out trying to do six hour rides in that. And Zwift didn't exist at the time. There wasn't a ton of appeal to be inside. So solution was let's do something that's uh, really short, really intense. Use your whole body to keep you warm. You get a good workout and uh, it could actually be fun in this miserable weather. And, and that was the impetus behind this. And then it became so much fun. It became a sport. Yeah. I, I mean, it, and, and it stuck. Right. And, and I think for a long time, you know, you either did cyclocross or you took really big chunks of time off, right? This right. wasn't a period where you you jumped on your mountain bike or you know you went out and did some like cross training. No, you probably like worked. You probably you probably went and worked a you know a, a farm job somewhere something like that, and you're probably muddy anyways. So why not just take off your boots and try it on your bike? And it, it showed in the bikes that you used, right? Like it was it was a, an adaptation of the of the training bike. You know how big of a tire can you fit in your normal training road bike? What can you take off of it? Can you, you know, these were guys were using single rings, you know, back in the in the sixties and the seventies. You know these setups that you see now, these mullet setups that seem to make a lot of sense. And that it's a new technology that really isn't much of it. And even if you look at tire tread, like there's <laughs> there's not that much different between like the Grifo of like 1978 and like what we use now, you know, the, or the traditional like yep. treads, you know? So uh, it, it really does have like this 
interesting kind of blue collar appeal, right? Uh, I think you look at the countries that cyclocross has been really successful in. These the the people that race it are so relatable to to the general public. Um, and I think back in the day, you know, you could go race with with Mercs or with with any of the the great Tour de France riders. And gradually that started to shift into this really kind of high-end spectator sport and then gradually shifted into its own professional sport in the the training and the the peaking and the equipment all of this stuff started to really shift over time to this point that we have this just crazy circus now yeah i really like the way you described why you like it you might not have been uh, able to fully uh verse what it its appeal is but it has that it certainly is a challenge it's not for everyone it's a little bit punk it's a little bit offbeat it's a little bit nonconformist it's a little bit um for people that are willing to take some risks and i think any skateboarder you know any bmx rider you know anybody that rides uh, bmx bikes in a skate park or jumps off of pallets isn't afraid to hurt themselves, <laughs> they, they, you know, like I don't want to make it sound like if you race cycle cross, you will hurt yourself. But I think, you know, there's some similarity there in that you have to be willing to take some risks in any of those disciplines to progress because it takes repetition. It takes falling down and learning what you did wrong to, to improve. And I, I think that is also part of its appeal is that it's, it's not, it's not easy to get good at it in some ways. I will go as far as to say, if you want to do well at cyclocross, you're going to crash and, and be ready for the crashes. The, the nice thing is you're not sliding across pavement at, at 50 kilometers an hour. You're often landing in mud or on dirt and you get back up, you brush yourself off and keep going. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, it, it, it really is the scenario of like, in order to get good at cyclocross, you have to find your weaknesses. You have this really steep learning curve. When you race road, you race crits, your imperative is to not fall down. Uh, I, I've had some, you know, 40 mile an hour uh, road crashes, uh, a few of them at this point, and not a single one of them was easy to come back from. Yep. It took, took weeks, months. Um, in fact, one took a couple of, years for me to really get my feet back underneath me when it came to how aggressive I rode, how many chances I took, how confident I was in, in a lot of things. But with cyclocross, you, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a part of, part of the, the racing and the training is falling down a little bit. Obviously you mitigate that. It's, it's not like you go out trying to fall down, but there's an element to it. It's, it's something you, you have to embrace a little bit. And, and I think that's this, this kind of idea I always come back to of like being the last man standing um, or the last person standing when it, when it comes to these races. I mean, Louisville nationals, for example, <laughs> I remember uh, probably one of the only good pieces of advice Tim Johnson ever gave me. Sorry, Tim. 
That's a question <laughs> of how much advice he gave you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was probably always trying to give you advice to sabotage you. But yeah, he, probably. You know, right? <laughs> yeah, but once he got on the other side of the tape, he was much better. Um, yeah, right. But I do remember, though, before before that race, that course was just deteriorating a lot. And, you know, you got to think about the the elite races. They're the last races. They're on, you know, Saturday and Sunday. And these races start on Monday. And they go all day. You have races all day long, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And if you have bad conditions and we're all on this, we're riding between the same two pieces of tape, those conditions are going to get really bad towards the end. What, there may have been a line somewhere on that course during the week and it very well may not uh, exist anymore. You know, you hope in a cyclocross race that there's two lines you mostly settle for one line. And sometimes <clears throat> in the case of, of nationals in Louisville, there was no line in a lot of places. There's absolutely no good line. So you just, you had to kind of adapt and, and be on your feet all the time. And, you know, Tim told me, Hey dude, you're going to fall down a hundred times in the rest race. You just need to get back up. And I, I, I thought long and hard about that. And I was like, okay, you just have to get back up. You just got to keep getting back up one more time. And I went through that a hundred times through my head during that race. And I fell. I fell 10 times. I, I don't even know how many times I fell or how many times Curtis had me on the ropes. Um, and I just had to keep saying like, Hey man, it's, you know, he's going to fall. I'm going to fall. Just get up and keep going. And that's, that's how I got through that. And certainly, you know, our topic of conversation here is how to deal with the cold and the, and the wet, the mud, the snow those are the conditions where you're going to fall a lot. If you're on a nice warm day in the grass, you, you probably aren't going to fall very much. Uh, so I, I would say our, our first practical advice comes from Tim Johnson, which is when you're dealing with these conditions, you're going to be falling. You're going to fall and just be okay. Get up and keep going. Yeah. It, and it is really practical advice, right? And it, and it, and it, it can work in so many different scenarios, but when we really start breaking down, you know, how, different a course can be and how different the conditions can be sometimes that fall is like first to last and sometimes that fall is just another part of staying in the front group um sometimes that fall brings you back 20 25 places right so it really is scenario to scenario whether or not you can actually come back from those things so having that in mind in every race situation just get back up just keep going is great how do you apply that in different scenarios in how i'm going to apply that in 90 degree heat coming back from 20 spots it's going to be a whole lot different than how do i apply that in 40 degree weather uh coming back from five spots or something like that or one spot or just just getting a, a 10 second gap um it can be really difficult and it, it takes a lot of awareness of what is going on in the race and obviously where you are at in the race, right? Whether it's the first lap or second to last lap or the last lap, how much can you still give? How much is it going to take? What's my best action plan here? Um, Cause it's not always the same. I would also say that it's easier said than done in some ways. You as a professional, and I'm not, I think I, I, I think I've got this right. You have uh, more to gain in some ways by putting it all out there and risking something by going to the limit and potentially crashing because 
this is what you do. Whereas the amateur rider, I don't think they can take the, okay, if I fall, I just get back up mentality um, and apply it uh, in practice as easily. That's my opinion. Um, Would you guys disagree with that? I, I just feel like some people are averse to risk for one thing. That doesn't mean they don't like cyclocross. It's just that they're not willing to go to the edge that that much or they think i have kids that i need to take care of or i have a job that involves me being able to stand <laughs> so i'm not gonna i'm not going to go that far you know and and that's okay that's obviously okay because it's supposed to be fun well i think of a there's a cross athlete who i'm coaching who he just got into it a couple of years ago and we've talked about the crashing and and I've told him, look, you know, every season you're going to crash multiple times and, and you need to be okay with it. But he's had this issue where he, if he crashes hard, it takes something out of him. And for the next five, six minutes, he just finds he can't put out the power and he loses ground on, on the people that he once was with. And that's a struggle because you know basically it's the only advice I can give them is, is you have to to learn to push through that. But I can't simply say, well, during your skills practices, go and hit the ground really hard and get used to this. You can't do that. So I'm actually interested in, in throwing this at you, Stephen. Any suggestions for athletes who are like that who they they hit the ground, they get back on the bike, but then they just find the wind's taken out of their sail for a bit. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that, that's such a common theme. It, it's more common than not. It, and even in the professional level and uh, the elite level, I mean, you see that you can watch an athlete and, and see when that focus gets turned off in just about every sport. We talk a lot about, you know, those like flow states, right? Like how do you, how do you get into that trance like state where, where you, you kind of check all that ego that you have. Right. And I, and what I mean by that, ego is not like, Oh, I'm the best, but what am I thinking about? What is kind of like, what have I kind of predetermined to have happened in this race? And does this completely derail that for me? That can happen to me. That can happen to, to well, then like that can happen to any single person out there. I, I think the, the big differentiation here is that when we talk about kind of riding that edge, um, of oh, I'm trying to think of a better way to say this, but the edge of disaster, right? Like how do you kind of push yourself to, to really be on your limit? I think that's the big difference in an amateur rider versus a professional rider is how much of a percentage of the race can one ride at the edge of their ability and how well can they transition between holding back and going all out and I, I think the biggest difference that you see in those athletes and those really successful athletes you know obviously the stronger you are combined with a stronger skill set the easier it is at certain speeds right like me yeah. versus Vanderpool at race pace it's a lot easier for him he is a physiological monster. I can't do anything about that. I can absolutely match my skill set to him. My physiological, my my physiological state is maxed 
<laughs> adjusted to, um, you know, his 80%. And so that pushes me to be riding that edge of disaster for a much larger percentage of the race than it is for him or someone like him, you know, not necessarily pinpointing him here. It's just that when I go practice, you know, and I think that I, I feel like some of the, some of the biggest questions I have around that, that I get from athletes um, looking to get better at cyclocross are like, you know, what intervals do I do? How much volume do I do? How, how much of this do I do? Should I get in the gym? How much running should I do? Well, I think the reality is like how much of that skill edge work do you do? And how well do you actually know yourself from a skills-based standpoint? And I would argue that not a lot of people are actually that aware of where they are on a skills-based level. And it shows tremendously on race day. It shows tremendously on practice days. You know, as, as a coach, I can give athletes, and as a mentor through, through many programs, I can give an athlete uh, a prescription for um, a certain off-road workout, right? And, and these aren't even like, most of the prescriptions for these off-road workouts start very, very easy. I remember in the episode with Katie Compton, she talked about starting at a really slow pace when she does any skills work, right? Yep. I think you'll see that across the board with, with any good skills-based athlete is this ability to kind of check that ego, go back to a beginner's mindset and cultivate this ground up mentality, no matter where they're at on a, a real skills level, you can take, you know, I, I consider myself a, a pretty high level of skill, especially when it comes to riding a, a curly bar road bike off road, somewhere where it really shouldn't go tires that are really shouldn't be doing that. And, and I attribute that to being able to take that step back, you know, every year <laughs> getting on that cross bike, like it's the first time I've ever gotten on a cross bike and, and having that list of process work that needs to go on. Like, how do I go practice barriers? I practice them like the first time I ever practiced them from the ground up, slowly walking, right? And then you find that area where like, oh, I lose focus here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've, I've met my ability for today here. One thing Al talked about on, Al Donahue talked about on that, uh, the last episode with him, was he talked about in, in skills practice, most athletes only have around like 45 minutes of really usable bandwidth. Uh, for skills practice. And I think what that often comes down to is not having kind of a gradient or an ability to um, gauge what kind of effort they're actually putting into this skills-based work. We look at intervals and we say like, okay, well, I should be doing 380 watts for, for three minutes. And sometimes if you're really aware of yourself and what's going on and you're smart, it's hot. I'm going to do these at 360 and I'm going to get the job done. And if I'm flying, I'm going to do them at 390. And this is great. It's everything's amazing. Um, temperatures down, whatever. We don't do that a lot of times with, with skills-based work. We go through, we practice the things that we're really good at fast. And the things that we're not good at, we also practice them fast. We fall on our face and we get really frustrated. I think everybody can relate to that. I've never met a single person <laughs> that once we get into the field, can't relate. They may not be able to relate in theory and <laughs> talking about it, 
you know, everybody's this great skills-based rider until we get into the field. And then it's just like, oh, we got a lot to work on, right? It, it, it's the same for me. You know, I'm humbled every time I, I go out and, and ride with, you know, another World Cup level rider. Um, I, I got to do a, a camp with, with Rob Bernard a couple of years ago and even just riding in Spain in some little dinky park um, or out on the beach doing, doing sand ruts, like absolutely pummeled on a, on a recovery day, uh, doing sand ruts, you know, and that, that gave me impetus to go home and really start from the, the bare basics, really check that ego at the shore and say like, okay, bare minimum. What, what do I have to do here? Like, what do I have to change equipment? Is my fit not right? So it's, it's a multifaceted thing. There's layers and layers and layers to that onion, uh, if you will. And I, I ultimately think that for a sport like cyclocross, skills are paramount. You yep. can take a really, really strong rider and, and they can absolutely get murdered on course by someone with relatively low power, but really high skill level. Well, I think of uh, that athlete I was just talking about who, who's recently got into cross and he's got a good engine mm-hmm. out on the road. He could do 340, 350 watts for an hour. His first year doing cyclocross, he was averaging 220, 230 in the races. And he was asking me, why is that? And look, you'll, if you can average 350 out in the road, you're never going to average 350 in a cross course. <laughs> yeah. But that's a big difference. And my response to him is that's all skills. And as he's been working on the skills, you've seen that average power come up, not because he's getting any stronger, but because he's handling the course better so he can, he can actually use more of his power. Absolutely. And, and that's a really good, that's a really good breakdown of, of how these, these courses actually break out. I mean, I've heard a lot, um, you know, there, I, I guess there's two things that I really hear about how to break down power um, or, you know, the efforts on a cyclocross course, you know, one is that it's all really sprints and the other that it's a time trial. Right. And it, I guess it depends on who you're asking and where they are in mm-hmm. the field. Right. One athlete very well may ride it like a time trial and one athlete very well may just ride it like a bunch of sprints. And, and I think if we look at like a normalized power file, as opposed to an average power file, that's where we really start seeing differences and the faster riders are going to be resting more where there is rest. And they're going to be going a lot deeper into the red when it comes to putting the gas on, right? Like where you see a rider resting is in the technical sections, those places where you, you have, you, you can't paddle. You, so you, you're forced off any other time, you know, you're either slowing down or you're going through a technical section. There's not really a time in the cyclocross race other than that where you can rest. So rest comes in two seconds. Rest comes in three seconds, one, one and a half seconds. It comes all those little turns where you can stop pedaling for, yeah, just, just a few seconds. It, and so when, when you see an athlete really start to improve, especially a strong athlete like that, who can go out and average these really high um, average powers, it's often, and you can see this in training, you can also see this in racing. You know, if you go break down a 15-minute set of laps or a 20-minute set of, say, you know, five, five-minute laps or something like that, or a four or five-minute laps, and, and you take that rider and you say, like, okay, 
I want you to go do four laps and I want the first to be the easiest and I want the last to be the hardest. And you look at that normalized power file and look at that heart rate file, 100%. That heart rate file and that power file is going to be high in the first part of it. It's going to plateau in the middle and it'll either plateau all the way to the end or it'll drop. If you take a really experienced rider and you say, hey, I need you to find speed here and I need you to increase overall speed over the lap, you'll see that the normalized power starts to rise around the middle of the, the lap session. And you'll see that max heart rate at the end as opposed to in the middle or the beginning. And the, the transverse of that is that you'll also see deeper peaks in where they're resting. So in order to go deeper, you have to rest more. And so that riding the edge of skill doesn't come when you're pedaling hard. The riding the edge of skill is how hard can you ride that edge of skill and recover through a section so you can go hard. So that, that's a really, really difficult thing to actually practice. You know, it, it's easy to talk about, but getting an athlete to actually do a moderate to slow lap of cycle cross is really hard. You're so amped up and everybody just like wants to go hard. But the reality is even doing an endurance type lap on a cyclocross course is from a heart rate perspective, uh, an interval or, <laughs> you know, it's, if you really break that down, if you look at it, you go like, Oh, with the same amount of perceived effort that you did to ride around the perimeter of the park on the road, doing that on the cyclocross course ended up actually looking more like a tempo on a threshold level effort. So you kind of have to build in a governor and a checking system um, in order to actually find where your limits are. Because I, it's just difficult to find where your actual lower limit is. It's very, very easy to find your upper limit. But if you don't know where your lower limit is, you don't know where you fall on that spectrum. And I, I just think that's a really, really critical thing. And it's just something that we don't really talk about very much. Yeah. And this also goes back to the importance of skills. If you are recovering uh, during the technical parts, um, if your skills are bad, no, you're not going to be recovering on the technical parts. You're going to be trying to get through the technical parts. So you, you need those skills so that when you hit those parts, you can relax and uh, make sure that you, you got the legs for the less technical parts where you can put down the power. Absolutely. And, and the athletes that you see, uh, that have that, you know, cyclocross is a time trial mentality tend to fit that profile pretty well of the same effort to get through a technical section is applied to uh, straightaway and vice versa. And so, yeah, it, it does end up feeling a lot like a, a time trial if, if that's the way you race it. This has been fascinating. So getting back to the what do we do uh, when you don't have that nice sunny day in the grass where you, you've got uh, muddy or snowy or, or wet conditions? How do you handle this? And, and I just want to say one thing about this before you take it away, which I, I think is important for all the listeners to understand, because a lot of riders, when they encounter these conditions, they don't think of it this way. When you hit that, those conditions, if you're there on a muddy, snowy day, it's going to slow you down. 
the goal here is not to try to be as fast as you would be in, in perfect conditions, but you have to remember it's going to slow everybody down. And the goal is to have it slow you down less than it's going to slow down everybody else. And I've already told this story on the show, but th this is exactly what I'm talking about. I had a cross athlete who I was coaching who lived in Vermont, was getting ready for nationals. So up in Vermont, the month before nationals, he was riding in the snow every day. And, and the race was in California. So he gets down there expecting it to be good weather. And the night before the race, it snows. And he calls me in an absolute panic saying, it's snowing. What do I do? And my response was, thank whoever sent the snow because you're racing a bunch of Californians. And he was looking at his, this is going to slow me down, which is right. But my response was, it's going to slow you down, but a heck of a lot less than it's going to slow down all those people who don't know how to ride in snow. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's all about, you know, everyone kind of, no matter where you're at, you have a, you have kind of a, a base level leg up depending where you go, right? Some, some people are going to have, uh, they live at altitude and they're, and they're just going to be naturally at a different level. Um, apples to apples when we show up at altitude and, and some people live in, in really just nasty conditions and that's what they have to ride in. And, and they're naturally going to have a leg up once we show up there and, and, you know, down the line. Right. Um, so I've always had this really big fascination with, uh, <laughs> um, Bruce Lee, uh, books <laughs> and sword fighting books. And, um, I, I just love it, you know, like, uh, Sun Tzu, like the art of war. I, I think they're so interesting because they distill these battles or wars or, how to kind of overcome an enemy. And, and I relate that to, to bike racing in a, in a really direct way. Um, and, and Bruce Lee, uh, and I think it was the Art of Kung Fu. Um, and this, God, this is probably six years ago. I, I even read this, so I'm probably gonna butcher it, but uh, essentially it's something that I've, I've always lived by, but he said, become a master of all forms, but fight with none. And, I find that so applicable for so many things in my life, but also in, in bike racing. And I've been able to relate them in bike racing in, in especially in cyclocross in this, this really direct way, you know, from training to racing. Whereas I, I take my season and I break it down and I look and say like, okay, this is a long season. Um, you know, for, for a lot of people, cyclocross is a short season. But for me, it's a long season. It's five months. I mean, that's, you know, that's almost half a year. Sometimes it's six months. Um, and a lot of it is, is spent in, in different parts of the world. So if I get caught up in saying that, well, I'm this one particular type of rider, um, I'm, oh, I, I'm really good at like fast, hot grass crits. Oh, I, I'm a mud rider. Oh, I, I'm, I'm good in sand. You know, you pigeonhole yourself in this way of like, well, if I'm that type of rider, then that's the only kind of conditions that I'm going to be good in. But I, I think it's a really humbling thing about cyclocross and, and bike racing in general, where, yeah, you can have a specialty, but really that specialty doesn't show up until you get to a certain level. Um, you might have that base conditioning for certain elements when you show up uh, to a degree. But once you're at like the World Cup level, you really only get a specialization until you're into that like top 10 on a pretty regular basis. And then that skill separation starts to actually show, right? Those cracks actually start to show. 
So the, I guess the, the question here is like, how does one train for varying conditions, varying course types, varying weather, um, et cetera, varying uh, physiological demands for a long season or for, um, or for, for short periods when, you know, like for me, I'm going to train in New England over the summer. It's gray, really humid, uh, about 88 degrees every day. And it's kind of dry half the time, pouring rain the other time. Um, so I, I start to look at like the weather and I start to say like, okay, here's my, here's my general plan, right? Like here's my outlook. Here's how much volume I'm going to do. Here's how many days of map work I'm going to do. Here's how many days of skills work. But if it rains, maybe I'm going to move that skills day so that I can take advantage of that rain. And one day I'm going to move it over to a course that I have set up that has uh, a bit of a bog in it. Um, and I'm going to learn to kind of uh, both slide around and use varying degrees of torque differences. Uh, maybe I'm going to go, go over to Ed Hamill's field where we've all done cyclocross practice forever. And I'm just going to go put a stake in the ground and do 180 degree turns and some wet grass. If it's hot, yeah, I'm trying to do map efforts. You know, I've got these like really hard efforts I've got to do, but if it's super, super hot and I'm just not conditioned for it, I either really have to modify that or maybe sometimes it's best to just do some endurance and skip it a couple of days and wait till the weather breaks. Building things into practice, I have two days a week at a base level where I'm off-road practicing. And I have about six or seven courses here in the valley that I'll go ride on any given day. It's not all sand. It's not all run-ups. It's not all trails. It's not all mud. It's not all grass. So moving those practices around and saying like, okay, today I'm going to practice this thing. Sometimes that comes down to, well, it's really hot. And maybe today's skill is actually just learning how to like, do a warm up in a hot park without blowing myself up so that I can do these efforts. Sometimes the skill is doing the efforts in the heat and learning how to really hold back. Yeah, it, it, it's, all, it's all about like where you're at, what kind of conditions you have to work with and how much you can prepare to do it. You're not always gonna have a situation where you have the right makeup of conditions for your goal event, but it takes a certain amount of, of patience and a, an ability to be aware that you're in over your head and to be able to go back, hate, you know, go back calmly into your consciousness and pull out some skill that you have deep down in there. So, you know, for me in Hartford, it was like, I found some really good wheels and instead of getting right back to the front and, and crashing another time, I took my time and I learned from the people that were around me. I think it's a really unique thing about cyclocross. We have laps and laps and laps and laps. It's like a criterium. If you can't ride the first 10 laps of a criterium very well, you have another 30 to go before you even need to get it right before the sprint starts. You know, sometimes it's 60 laps or 90 laps before you, you actually even have to have those perfect laps. And thinking about like grading, you know, your effort and how to kind of train for these things. 
you don't have to have the perfect elements to train for a specific thing as long as you have a practice that suits learning on the fly. So part of that weekday practice for me isn't practicing a specific skill per se. It's, again, practicing practice. It's practicing practicing (laughs) when you're in over your head. When I'm riding the edge of my ability, how can I practice in nine laps to get one perfect lap? Because that's all it takes. There's, There's races where you go out and you get, it's a 12 lap race and you ride off the front and for 12 laps, you're perfect. And everything is amazing. And you don't think about anybody on the sidelines and none of the conditions matter to you. You're just, you're just on fire. You don't skip a beat. And there's other days, there's other days where it's an absolute struggle from lap one. You missed your pedal. uh, You went off in a rut. You, you hit some tape. You you went off course. You know, there's, there's any number of things that can happen. So when we talk about skills acquisition in the ability to kind of refocus within a race scenario that comes on those practice days that comes on a, like, I'm not going to give up because or I'm not going to change the plan because I keep slipping up on this route. I'm going to take the next relapse to figure out why I'm slipping up on that route in time, in real time and make that adjustment. And if you can make that adjustment in practice and then increase that speed because you made that adjustment, then you're able to, relay that into into a real life scenario such as racing and use those like nine or ten laps as like your first practices until you get that 10th or 11th lap just perfect in let's hear from alec donahue a senior coach at cycle smart and a past expert national mountain bike champion he shares his thoughts on dressing for bad weather races well, training, you know, so like when it's, you know, this time of, you know, so not sorry, if it's like spring or, you know, like it's not cross season, but we're getting a lot of cold rain, it is good to go out on the cross course and, you know, give some laps a go and like, you know, get some exposure to that. And, you know, dressing like for cross is like, it's comical how big your bag of clothes is for a 30 to 60 minute race. And so dressing is everything or a big part of things. And so this is, you know, I think in those cold weather months, you notice that like being a little heavier is an advantage in those like muddy, cold hypothermia races where like the climbers that beat you all year are just shivering all their glycogen out of their legs even before we start. And so, yeah, body mass actually does have, you know, a a play in this. Hello, Fast Talk Labs members. This is head coach Ryan Kohler here. We are pleased to announce a big change to our forum. Our forum is now open to all listener members. Listener members can read and respond to 11 forum categories spanning topics like training concepts, physiology, sports nutrition, workouts, and more. Our members say that our forum has one of the highest signal-to-noise ratios in endurance sports. By opening our forum to listener members, we hope to encourage more discussion of all the topics that interest you. So jump right in, log in or join as a listener member and explore some of our most viewed posts like raising the ceiling, raising the floor, Dr. San Milan's zone two rides, and Sebastian Weber answers questions on inside. We'll see you on the forum.
<laughs> so hearing what you're saying that, you know, it, this is a, a philosophy and approach and it's, it's learning how to kind of ride on that edge. Still like to get into a little more of the specifics. I know you, you've had a lot of experience in riding in these sorts of conditions. And I'm just thinking of our listeners, a lot of them who might be very new to cyclocross and are just building the basic skills. What would be specific suggestions you would have for dealing with that kind of sloppy, rainy, muddy type conditions? Yeah, right. So that, that, that's one that, um, again, like that's something that you may not see until race day. And you actually may not get that chance to even go out and practice it. So it, it's hard, you know. I do a lot of sand training. I, we have a course out here that just has a lot of sand. And I, I think that one skill that is really applicable across the board is not being able to put out a lot of power per se, but it's being able to use whatever power you have in a really efficient manner in about a two inch wide or one inch wide rut. <laughs> so the reason why I like sand is because it forces me to ride in the exact same spot over and over and over. So when I go out and practice by myself, I may have an entire field or an entire area where, um, and this is regardless of, of, of the, of the soil composition, right? Like it could be sand, it could be dirt, it could be grass, whatever it may be. My, if I boil down my practice, it really is to do my entire practice in about a one inch wide swath of, of track, right? So that becomes applicable because in muddy conditions, often there forms a racing line, right? We've all seen the brown line, the dark spot. And, and sometimes that spot is not good to ride. Sometimes I actually look for the green, right? Like if it's a, kind of a really grassy course, um, mm -hmm. actually riding on the, on the harder green stuff can be a little bit grippier. However, if you can ride a 33 millimeter wide section for say three to 10 feet, and you can put out power doing that, whether it's sand or mud or ice, you will have a skill set that is really just paramount to anything else. Um, so I would say that I would say like find a place where you can ride ruts. You know whether it's a three minute lap somewhere in the woods or it's a ten minute lap, whatever it is, focus on whatever turn you're going through or whatever kind of obstacle you're doing. Focus on a really 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 small line. Now it's more difficult when there's other people, but you can also use that to your advantage if you have a group practice. Um, say we have a Saturday group practice out here. And, you know, for me riding throughout the week, there's a really fine rut in just about every corner because I'm, I'm very precise with that. And by the, about an hour in a Saturday's practice, that thing's about two feet wide. And so it, it, it's often we have to kind of like slow everything back down and, and find that minutia of, what the real skill is here it's is it doing something really fast or doing something really efficiently so whatever skill you are doing and if it's if it's trying to find mud or if it's trying to find ice you know traction in ice or if it's trying to ride in sand the skill really is slowing down to a very very basic level where you can ride it slowly but really efficiently 
and increase speed from there. Now, preparing for, say, a snowy course, um, building those skills, is, is it very similar or are there other things that you can work on to be able to ride in the snow? Yeah, it's similar, right? And here's, here's where cyclocross really gets nitty gritty is equipment. Um, you know, some are more fortunate than others to have a lot of different equipment. As a professional, we use a lot of equipment, right? Like we have any number of different gearing combos. We have any number of different tread patterns. You know, sometimes it's even down to brake pads or, or pressures, right? So understanding kind of like the equipment you're on, what it does well. So if you have, if you're lucky enough to have a couple of treads, ride those different treads, you know, find those different conditions. You know, if it's a, a mud tire, go ride, go find that wet day and go ride out in the mud. Maybe even try it on a dry day. I, I think I'll, I'll say this about tread. Always in practice, anyways, always eventually try to ride the lowest tread possible in the conditions that you're in. And I think you'll see that especially on the, the World Cup level, is that often you'll see like a really muddy race in Belgium or something like that. And you'll be like, oh, they're on mud tires. And I made this mistake when I was when I first went over there. I remember a Spa Francochamps was my my first uh, race in Europe. And if you guys haven't seen that race, it's insane. It's absolutely bonkers. Um, and it was so, I remember there was these really muddy sections and I went through and I put my mud tires on and I got on the line and I was like, that guy's on file treads. Those guys are all on grifos. What the heck am I doing? And I realized that there were zero sections, if done correctly, where I needed traction in a straight line. The ruts did everything. If you can drop down in a rut, that's where your traction is. The closer to the hard ground you can get, the better off you are. And sometimes those bigger treads keep you from actually getting down into the ruts. So to one mistake that I see a lot of people make is overriding the treads. You show up to a course with mild, you know, loose conditions and, and boom, they're on straight mud tires and you're just bleeding speed at that point. So it, it can, it can be really beneficial for any condition to just, just learn your tread pattern and learn to ride a really, really low tread pattern if possible. Um, one one thing I'll say about kind of snow and ice is that a condition on the conditions on snow with snow and ice on a cyclocross course may be extremely different than what you may have at home. You're like, oh, I'm gonna go, it's it's snowed eight inches, I'm gonna go ride in my yard. That's not what a cyclocross course looks like. You're not plowing through snow, right? It's, you're not plowing through like hub deep snow. It's actually really, really packed. Um oftentimes it's it's just, maybe a little bit melting, right? Because it's usually like for the men and the women, it's it's midday, sun's out, uh, a little bit slick. So just understand that it's not always going to be favorable conditions. Learn, learn to be patient and just keep going. <laughs> yeah. And I'll actually take that a step further that if you're traveling, snow in one place isn't going to be the same. If you're, if you're racing in the Northeast U.S. and there's snow on the ground, usually the ground's going to be quite hard. Out in Colorado, it took me a while to get used to this. You can have a ton of snow on the ground, but the at least down in the the foothills, uh, the the mud never freezes. 
So it's, it feels softer. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one year we went to um, Overijssel, which is a race in Belgium. Uh, it, it's pretty near Brussels. It's very hilly. The, the grapes cross. It's really, really cool. If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's, it's old. It's, it usually hasn't been uh, a series, but I think now it's part of the World Cup. And I remember driving to it. It was just, just dumping snow. But when we got on the course, the snow didn't actually change any of the conditions whatsoever. It was already wet. So even the almost inch of snow on there didn't actually affect our traction one bit. There were still ruts. There was still grass where it was. So we ran the same tires. It, it didn't actually end up mattering that much. I, I think the thing where you really see the difference in ability and riding on that hard, packed, rutted out ice I remember at Hartford riding behind Jonathan Page, and this is when I'm, I'm a hot mess. You know, I crashed. I'm, I'm whatever. Way, I'm way beyond where I, I thought I should be, and I'm, I'm coming back through, and I pass a rider, and I pass a rider, and I'm starting to put efforts down. And I remember getting to Jonathan Page's wheel, and I think this is the last year that, second to last year that that he was racing, and I always looked up to Jonathan, and he's such a smooth rider, and I remember getting to his wheel and going. I'm not going anywhere. I still have like eight laps to do and I'm learning a whole lot right now. You know, I was, I was crossing up in the rut. I was sliding my rear tire. I was overusing my brakes. And here's this guy just barely touching his brakes, riding half as hard as I was. And I'm having a hard time staying on his wheel. So I took a whole lap to just sit on his wheel. And it was like, Hey, thank you. Uh, see you later. But thanks. That was, uh, that was amazing. I'll, I'll thank you after the race. Uh, <laughs> remind me to buy you a drink or something. <laughs> like, that was incredible. Um, so it, it really does come down to, you know, you think conditions are going to be one thing, but really race day, it just, it, it, it's, uh, it's going to surprise you far none. Um, so, so you're going to get there with the equipment that you have. It's not like you're going to go buy some new tires race day. Um, so be comfortable on your equipment and be comfortable riding different pressures. You know, I, I think that's a really big element to cyclocross that it's almost this mythical element of cyclocross tire pressure, right? I think most elites in, you know, professionals, I'd say all elite and professional riders is, are still riding tubulars. You know, and there's a reason for that. You know, they stay on at low pressures and you don't pinch flat at low pressure. So understanding your equipment and, and understanding their uses and how applicable they are um, in, in different different events. You, you might end up riding a file tread on ice and probably are, but your your first inclination is likely to get the heaviest tread you possibly can. But again, it's not about straight line traction. It's about dropping into a rut and using that as like a rail to get you around the corner or something like that. You know? uh, yeah, I was, I was going to, you know, you, you've been giving us a lot of not only practical advice, but some philosophy here. And I've really been enjoying it. I do have some questions about how you train this. You've mentioned a few scenarios. Do you prefer to train by yourself or do you think that you gain more by training with others and do you have a recommendation for for the amateurs out there listening i think there's an application for both i think probably for a, from a timing standpoint 
it's important to be able to to train by yourself. And I, I think a lot of people have a, a hard time with that. I mean, it's it's difficult to be self-directed. You know, it, it's difficult to be um, critical <laughs> of, of one's abilities and to actually humble themselves in order to actually train at the level they need to train at. And I, I say that from experience, you know, both, both seeing it, you know, directly with clients and with uh, other riders, other professionals, but dealing with it myself more than anything is that ability to actually uh, check in with yourself. You know, like, are you making notes? Are you, are you using whatever training platform, you know, uh, today's plan or training peaks? Are you using notes in that? Are you, are you making uh, recommendations for yourself? Are you being honest with the level that you're really riding at? You know, if you by yourself, if you can go out and make things really repeatable, it's just like an interval. If you can make it repeatable and you can make it uh, measurable, then you can see progress. But you can't see progress if you don't know how slow you can go around it, right? So anytime you can uh, ride with other people, I, I obviously recommend it. It's much more fun. Um, it's good to be able to kind of get pushed. But I think there's a time and place for the, the off-road practice that ends up becoming a, a practice race, right? I think w one thing that we have a kind of a difficult time coming to an understanding of for our Saturday practices is that this isn't a race. And while we might have 10 or 15 people, it's the goal of the practice is not to beat the other person. It's not to be the fastest person in the lap. It's to, again, get within your own capabilities and figure out what makes you the fastest for you and not be dropped by another person. And I think that practice is twofold. You know, one, it's a reminder that practice is not about racing. <laughs> you know, yeah, we are practicing to race, but the practice itself is not a race. You know, yeah, I, I don't think anybody goes out and does intervals side by side with their friend that has 10 more watts on their threshold to them. That's exactly how you ruin your workout. You go home with your tail between your legs going, oh my God, that guy is so much better than me. And oh my God, I couldn't even finish my workout. I'm terrible. So going out and only doing practice races, I find that that can be a little bit harmful at times. Uh, demoralizing you know, like, probably too <laughs> yeah right i was gonna say at a skill session with a group the best thing is to have a whole bunch of people that are more skilled than you and then instead of trying to match them by just uh, you know putting out more power get behind them and and try to match them on the skills try to learn from them try to follow them through the corners through the ruts see what they're doing a absolutely what, what a blessing that is to actually have people to push you and and to have an aspiration right i think we all need that to a really large degree i mean that's why we that's why we're doing any sport you know we, we aspire to be better than we are we aspire to be be like someone else or, or to be at a different level than we are and so when we talk about whether it's better to or you know if training with other people or by yourself is you know applicable then you have this really interesting scenario where if you can do say one day a week with other people and pinpoint specific deficiencies or skills that you're good at, and then 
take that second day, that low key day. You know, sometimes I prescribe for my athletes um, actually skills on a rest day. You know, either or, either you know, short spin, uh, take that time and go do some really really basic work, or um, or take the day off. Right. You can kind of go back with that information gleaned from those practices. You know, especially if you're a good note taker. Uh, whether it's in your head or again, you, know, you have a, a paper note or journal, or you're using one of your platforms, you, you make those notes and go back and say like, okay, well, I was, I was getting gapped off here and be honest with yourself. Hey, I was getting, I was getting murdered here. Like, <laughs> absolutely. I got dropped in you know, this scenario, you know, it, it's trying to figure out that, that kind of gap analysis, right. Where, you know, you, you do that with your athletes in, in terms of uh, performance do that with yourself on a daily basis. Have, pre- prepare that gap analysis and say like, this is what went wrong. You know, don't prescribe, oh, I need to be better at this. Start with, this is what was happening. This is what went wrong. Break down what skills need to be developed in order to do that. And then work on them one by one. Take those home. And I, and I guarantee you over a couple of weeks time, you will absolutely develop the muscle memory the reaction that you need to take those skills and apply them in a more a higher pressure scenario no that's that's a really good point you know i also want to point out going back to the the doing skills of the group i think it was grant holicky who said this on the the episode that we had him on for for psychocross that and this is a different form of a gap analysis is if you're out doing skills by yourself and say you come to this corner that's all muddy by yourself you might go oh that's impossible i got to hit my brakes and take that slow if you're going out with really skilled riders and and three people ahead of you go through that without touching their brakes and they're nice and smooth and uh and just kind of flow through it, then you can't say, oh, I have to hit my brakes. That's impossible. You go, well, they just did it. I, I <laughs> got to try myself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and actually on that, one of my favorite bottom-up skill sessions, and, and this is something one can do on any bike at any time, year-round, on any on any ride, because it doesn't take any effort, is find an area it could be around a bunch of park benches. It could be a, a, a short, flat trail or something like that. But find an area that you can control speed very well. Um, I have a, a little park down the road called Monotuck. It's got kind of a rudy little meandering single track trail around it. And it's short. And there's another park down here called Robinson that, that's really good for this. Anything really winding about Boulder, you guys have all these pads, all these awesome little pads. And, you know, if you can find a little short circuit, start at a really base level. And I mean, base level, like slow. And have a goal of riding at increasing paces until you have to hit your brakes. So you could do this for an hour. <laughs> I, I found myself zoning out and doing this for multiple hours at a time, just getting so into it and so energized by it. But being really honest with it, and this is actually really fun with a group where you say out loud, you know, say like, um, so you find a lap and it's 10 minutes and you're going to do that lap with five other people. Every time you hit your brakes, call out what, what number of, of hitting your brakes that was, right? So like if you're going through and you're like, oh crap, one, you know, and, and you go through and, and every time you hit your brakes, you slow down a little bit 
and then you ramp back up that speed really, really slowly. And this teaches you a lot of things. You know, it teaches you to be very realistic about your skill level. It teaches you to focus on, <laughs> on a really deep level. It teaches you a, a minutia of awareness with bike body separation that is really, really difficult to attain. And it can really help you dial in your equipment to a really large degree. You know, this is a good opportunity to raise or lower your bar, pull your hoods up a little bit, check your tires, tire pressure. You know, I, I find that doing this on road tires has been really, really beneficial or, you know, my, my beater practice dreads. We just go and, and find minimal traction areas with lots of turns and, and find a realistic speed that you can do it at. And the accomplishment that you can get out of doing something like that and making it through a whole thing at the pace that you think is really exceeding your limit without hitting your brakes, I, I get so much more out of that than I've ever gotten out of a you know, set of five by fives or something like that. Like it, it goes far. This is also a way if you're doing a skills practice with a group and you're all really competitive, you can get that competitive side without having to go really hard. You, you can have that <laughs> yeah. contest of, First person to use their brakes has to buy the beers afterwards, things like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and you go back, you know, you start back at the beginning, you all gather around in a circle and you say like, okay, how many, you know, oh, I had one, oh, I had 10. Right. And you're like, yep. okay, cool. Now you get in the front, you know, guy with 10, get in the front and then we're going to ride behind you and we're going to work that out. I, I think it's workshopping skills. Practice can be a really, really, really good way to learn. One practice that I really like to implement in, in our practices, which we haven't done this year, but I did last year, is breaking people up into small groups, one or two riders, and having them do a lap on each other's wheel at basically like, you know, tempo heart rate and, and go through all the technical sections and, and ride pretty close and basically do a lap and then do an easy lap. So, so the lap I'm talking about, it's about a five minute lap. And so you do it at, you know, for race pace, it's about five minutes. So it runs out to about six minutes at, at tempo. And then you do that an easy lap and you discuss what you saw. I, I almost hate to chime in because you've been given so much good advice, uh, Stephen, but let's, let's turn our attention to some race scenarios. Uh, why don't you break down a race day for us? And let's start with a, like a, a, a cold, wet day. Um, what do you do for warm up? What do you do for gear choice? How do you race that race tactically, technically, um, differently than in, in some other race scenarios? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think this is a really good talking point and has a lot of variation. And and honestly, if you talk to 10 different people, they'll probably give you 10 different answers. But from my experience, you know, again, cyclocross is, is so equipment heavy. And I think that could be a little bit of a barrier at times, yet maybe demystifying some of that may help. Um, so if, if we're talking about a, a cold, wet scenario, which is, it's kind of what we like pray for in cyclocross, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, let the heavens open up and we're, you know, right, be miserable right. for everyone. <laughs> um, I think having good clothing matters a lot. And you don't have to have a ton of it. One thing that I, I learned pretty early on from from Jeremy Powers was, if there's something that you may need, bring it and bring two of them. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's always served me really well. Um, and oftentimes there's there's things that I really rely on 
when I need them, but not necessarily all the time. And I might have three of them. And, and that might seem overkill, except for I've lost one or I, I've ruined something, you know, whether it's uh, shoe covers, uh, a jacket or cleats, something like that. So if I were to go through a, a breakdown of like a really wet, cold day, it would start in the morning. Often, you know, with cyclocross, we're doing back-to-back races. So usually you kind of wake up pretty fried, um, have your breakfast. And oftentimes I'll go out for a short spin in the morning. I'll have breakfast and then I'll kind of go out for a short spin, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, super, super easy. Um, if the weather's really bad, I'll, I'll just do that indoors, you know, uh, or I might swap that out with say like a, a yoga session or sometimes even gone down to the hotel spin bike. If you don't have the ability to do that, or if your race is really early in the morning, it's not necessary. It's just nice to do. It's nice to just kind of get the, get the blood moving for me anyways. Then cyclocross gets really interesting because we have, typically we have time to break down the course itself, right? So there's usually like a pre-ride. There's usually like kind of a course inspection window. And often the, these are the hardest time for, especially for amateurs where you, you may be doing all your own bike washing. You may have very limited equipment choices. You may want to use your, you know, your, your kind of B equipment to do that course ride. So you can kind of save your, your A bike. If it's cold, I often opt to warm up before even getting on the course. If it's decent weather, right, I'll just go out for a little spin in the parking lot or around the block, a couple of miles, maybe on the, and, or sometimes if it's a really easy course, we'll just jump right on. But usually a cyclocross course is hard enough just trying to get around it that you need some amount of warm up. I see a lot of people jump right out of the car and right onto the course. And I think that can, that can be a little bit much. It can be a little bit of a shock and depending on your level of training can be a little bit of your effort for the day. Um, especially if it's deep mud or something like that. So often I'll do a little bit of warm up, 20 minutes or so on the rollers or trainer and, and get out on the course. My, my first, my, my recon laps are almost always the same. I do about three recon laps. I do one very, very slow. And I just really see what the conditions are like. And sometimes if it's really muddy, it's, there's a significant amount of standing around, just looking where are the lines, you know, I'll watch a few people on course and say, oh, they're riding through that. I'll, I'll try that when I come around, um, checking out any significant, uh, obstacles or uh, technical sections and really just kind of getting a lay of the land. My second lap will be a lap where I ride at say endurance, <laughs> if it's really heavy, I mean, there's, there's not much you can do. You're, just, you're doing almost threshold to get around it. But then I'll, I'll still either walk hard sections or I'll just ride them, them mellow and, and just try to do them. And then usually I'll do like a hard lap where I'm riding at uh, a decent pace, you know, endurance or tempo. And then I'm really riding some of those sections hard, right? So you're getting some short accelerations. You're, you're getting to ride stuff that you need to be able to ride that edge of technical ability on uh, at a decent clip to really see if that equipment that you're on or if the ground you're on is going to hold. So then it's really just get cleaned up as, as quick as possible. You know, sometimes, you know, especially for amateurs that may be right before your race. So you might have some rain gear that you put on over your, your kit, over your skin suit, and you can pop that off, maybe swap your shoes, maybe just wash them off, 
grab your hay bike and go to the line. Um, otherwise for me, it's a change of kit and rest, you know, journal or think about what my race scenario may look like. Um, eat some food and, uh, you know, hydrate and start preparing to get warmed up. So then about, uh, 40 minutes before my race start, I'm on the trainer. If it's really hot, I'll go outside. I, I won't do it on the trainer. If I have the ability to go ride on the road, I'll, I'll do that to save myself some heat exhaustion. But if, if it's, if it's cold or it's rainy, I like to save, you know, my kind of bandwidth for those conditions as much as possible. I, I, I know a lot of people that are like, well, you gotta get used to the bad weather, but I'm okay racing it. I don't need to go warm up in it. <laughs> I'll save it. <laughs> I'll save you, the you, yeah, you've it. dealt you've dealt with enough bad weather. You know what it's like, right? Yeah, I have a, I have a general idea of what's about to happen. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I'll stay on the trainer. Um, and and usually it's about so it's about 45 minutes beforehand. It's about a 30 minute warm up for me. I kind of go through the zones, get pretty warmed up. You know, one one mistake I, I see a lot is people stay on the trainer too long, where they go too deep on the trainer. Really, you know, breaking down a day of cyclocross, you know, it may be a 60-minute race, but it's three hours of riding on a typical day. Sometimes it can be almost four hours of riding. It depends on, on the course, on uh, kind of if I ride to and from the hotel, et cetera. So understanding what, you're, what you've trained for and taking that into account when you start doing your warm-up. I, I think a big mistake is getting on the trainer or starting a warm up without a plan for that warm up. Nerves are your worst enemy when you get on the trainer. You look around, you see everybody going hard. You know, you might have thought like I'm going to do 5 minutes easy, but you look over and you see your competitor going super hard and there you go. VO2 right off the bat. <laughs> um, so so for me I have a plan, I'm ready to go and I have a really strict time limit. You know, a couple of ramps up, 3 minutes, no longer couple of uh accelerations in the legs and and kind of make sure that I'm, I'm ready to go 15 minutes before the start um and then i roll to the line and i'm i'm ready to go we recently had dr william adams on the show he's the associate director of sports medicine research at the united states olympic and paralympic committee specializing in heat stress however he knows a lot about the cold as well he shared some thoughts on racing cyclocross and bad weather you know, I, I think making sure that they're wearing proper clothing to help, one, provide some insulation to, to help maintain body temperature, um, but to really help to prevent some of the um, freezing injuries that can occur um, with exercise in, in, in cold in environments. You know, with, with exercise, you're going to be producing body heat, so your, your body's going to be producing heat to, to do that. Um, but you know, your body, you know, you could be at risk for, for having some freezing injuries, um, you know, such as frost nip or frostbite, if your body's not adequately covered, um, with, you know, clothing that can help, uh, prevent those injuries from occurring. So, you know, I think, you know, being prepared, um, from that perspective, making sure that you're, you're wearing proper clothing that's going to, um, help minimize the risk of some of those cold related injuries from occurring is going to be very helpful. In those instances, we're putting topical agents on on the skin. Um, it could have it could have some potential drawbacks. Um, where if you're putting a topical agent on the on the skin, that's going to 
um, have the sensation of being warm or or hot. Um, it may not be um, uh, appropriate, um, especially in the sense if you're out exercising in a, in a very cold environment where the risk of, of a freezing injury is is rather high, and you're putting um, balm on your skin to you know have a hot sensation. Um, yeah, that, that balm may uh, have a, a hot sensation on the skin and you may feel that sensation, um, but that balm is not going to protect the skin in and of itself and the skin cells and, and those tissues and structures and, and under the skin um, from that cold exposure. So it could provide a, a false, um, false uh, assurance that you know, it's, it's effective when in, in reality it could be detrimental. bring up a really important point because remember a cyclocross race as you said for the pros it's 75 minutes for most of us it's an hour or less but it's it's high intensity uh, and particularly when you start getting in that cold wet weather it is glycogen depleting you are going to burn through the glycogen in your muscles and you only have enough glycogen at those sort of intensities to last you uh, about an hour for a lot of us, it's a little bit less. So what you don't want to be doing on the trainer is these too many big efforts or spending a ton of time at threshold where you're already depleting your glycogen. You're really not going to have a chance to uh, restore any of that before the race. And if you're going into the race, you know, you did all your, your recovery leading up, you did a great race dinner, but then in your warm up, you, you burn through 10, 20% of your glycogen, you're going to be in trouble in the race. So you want to be careful about doing too much. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a trap, right? It's, we get nervous. We go through that and, and especially depending on our level of nutrition, I think that can play a really big factor into it. We travel a lot for cyclocross. So, you know, whether you were able to eat well for the couple of days, prior to your event, um, whether you just drove in 10 hours, you know, that night before and ate at McDonald's and plopped down in your hotel and, you know, grabbed the waffle off the table and went, um, can have a really significant role in your ability to perform. So if you feel like your nutritional levels are not adequate, you know, if you're, if you're just, you just don't have the calories to perform today, you need to take that into account. And Trevor, like you said, it's cold. We burn through a lot of calories when it's cold. And when you're wet, likewise, you know, you might not be cold all the time. You know, it's it's not always cold and wet at the same time. Sometimes it's rather warm and wet. But when you start moving, you start cooling off a whole lot. So you do have to take that into account. And so having food on hand, it can be really critical. You know, both have your meals planned out, but your key meals, your breakfast, your pre-race meal, and your post-race meal. But also having food around, you know, having a scratch bar in your in your pocket, having yep. gummies or uh, a <laughs> huge one is making sure you have calories in your drink. Um, I think that can go a really, really long way. You know, everybody, you see everybody with a water bottle in their hand drinking, but you don't see a lot of people eating. They forget to do it. So making sure that you have some calories consuming just about all of the time before your race is super critical. Can you take us inside the race now a bit and... and- talk to us about how you approach a race of this kind or do you have to wait and see how that first lap goes before you know how it's going to play out there's two tactics to play you know whether it's hard from the gun or 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 wait till you're ready um 
and if it's super muddy like that, often it, it becomes very selective. Mud is kind of the great equalizer in a lot of ways. Um, ice as well. When it comes down to a course that is just deteriorated, half your competition is gone right away. If you've prepared properly, you know, at least from a fitness perspective, and, and like you said about, you know, like we talked about earlier about how to kind of learn in race scenarios or prepare for these things, you can check half your competition off immediately as soon as you get off the start pavement. Um, whether it's, it's somebody not technically proficient enough and they're just wasting lots, they'll last a lap. Um, maybe it's something that's really technically proficient, but not as strong, and they'll be there for a really long time. Um, oftentimes you have to bide your time, you know, with races like that. Certainly there are situations where you come off the pavement and you're just on a roll. Um, in almost every, in almost every scenario, when the course conditions are are you know, no matter who's there, whether it's a World Cup field or a domestic field, if the conditions are bad enough, there is no racing anyone else. The tactic really does come to how do I pace this and not explode? <laughs> you know, how, you know, how do I not bonk? How do I not run out of energy? How do I do nine laps of this? How do I not crash? How do I make up time? How do I not bleed time? You know, if you're at a decent level and you, you race these people on a, on, a, on a regular basis, you know, I talk to master's athletes all the time that know more about their competitors than I do. You know, they're like, oh, this person, you know, they did that in this race, they did this, 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 this. Um, have that level of, of kind of sophistication when it comes to your competitors because it really matters on days like that. Because you can set up and say like, well, this person is going to ride so hard in the first lap that I will detonate. So I cannot race them. You know, going back to that Valkenberg world, that was the hardest race I've ever done in my entire life. Bar none. Absolutely the most brutal thing I've ever done. And I don't think I cared about a single other person out there. You know, my goal was to get top 15. And I literally just, blocked out every other person on the course. And I just did my lap. I, I knew what it felt like to go hard. I knew what it felt like to stay within myself. And only I can say whether I am riding the course very well or not, especially in those conditions. And you can't presume to understand where someone else is at, especially when you don't have the bandwidth to look over and check in on. You know, it's not like you're like, oh, well, I've been watching him forever. I'm like, no, you, you've been looking at a one inch spot on the ground for 45 minutes you, you don't even notice anything you don't even notice spectators at that point so pacing can be really important for those types of events um it doesn't always have to come down to tactics tactics uh, especially around other people one one final question i had for you and i don't know if this is easy to answer or not do you have any tips for people um, you've mentioned it throughout the the episode today, and and it's it's such a thing in cyclocross that you don't get elsewhere because of the changing nature of courses. And that is, how do you read that terrain, lap after lap, to know how you have to make adjustments to better ride it? Yeah, that's a really good question. 
that's actually something that I spend a lot of my time pondering at cyclocross races, uh, <laughs> if I'm to be honest. Um, you know, if you're if you're lucky enough to be in a group, I think the best thing you can do is to sustain a level of effort and consciousness that you are aware of what's going on with the other riders. And, you know, I, I, I've heard it said a lot of times, like, oh, the best thing you can do in a cyclocross race is get to the front of the group. But I often find that depending on who you're with and depending on the scenario, this is uh, obviously there are a lot of caveats here, but sometimes being at the back of that group may be the best thing. If you don't feel like that group is going to split at any given time or you feel like that group is, is really well matched, you know, take me, you know, and I'm just going to, I'm going to use my experiences here. Take me, uh, Curtis White, Kerry Werner, Toby Norton-Blatt, right? These are guys that I race constantly. They're always, you know, my, my kind of ever competitors. You get to know them really well, but sometimes there's somebody that jumps in that you have no idea who they are, yet they seem to match you relatively well. So sometimes you can say like, oh, well, this person, you know, may crack at this point. That's just kind of where it's going to go. Um, this person may have a difficult time in these conditions because that's just kind of the, the rider they, they shake out as. But often it, it's sitting back and watching. Do a lap or two laps behind people. And, you know, I said earlier that sometimes we're, we're really, most of the time a course has two, two lines in any given spot. And we're lucky to have two lines. Most of the time it's a single line. I am often behind people taking relatively low risk B lines in order to see if there's a difference. And sometimes that difference, and this this probably comes down to a little bit of fitness too, like if you have the fitness to spare uh, to some degree, taking a couple of bad lines to see what they're really like or to you know maybe change your perception a little bit of like, oh, that looked like a bad line. I perceived that as a bad line, but turns out actually it saved me a second here. It saved me a half a second. Actually, I was able to not pedal through the section and I didn't lose any speed, turns out. And sticking that in your back pocket um, and, and utilizing those when it's necessary. You know, uh, Trevor, you said that one thing that you noticed about the, the top riders is that they're able to do these really consistent lap times. Yeah, that, kind of getting at that, they don't ever have that those bad laps where they really just start to slow down. Yeah, right? They have laps where they speed up, though, right? Yep. So uh, I think one thing you'll see if you really break down a cyclocross, like a World Cup cyclocross race, the first lap is just ungodly hard. The second lap is the same. But by the second lap, it's usually broken apart. And so this is where you start to see people settle in a pretty fair amount. Now, depending on the dynamic of the race, depending on who's there, depending on the conditions, this may differ. However, often what you see is a couple of laps of shuffling and shuffling and shuffling. And usually what that is is somebody saying, like, they're, they're taking stock of where they are, what they have to give, what they have to lose, and also taking stock of what everyone else is doing. Hey, was that person able to actually ride this line? Am I able to put a line in my back pocket? And so you see a very consistent lap increase, laps break apart, laps come back together, laps break apart, they come back together. 
but it's typically within about a 20 second, um, 15 or 20 second differentiation until it isn't anymore. And that's usually with two laps to go or sometimes one lap to go. And then all of a sudden you see a negative 30 split on that lap. And that's the culmination of those first 90% of the laps of getting it right and seeing where someone else may get it wrong or seeing trends in someone else's ability and riding in their, where they ride, you know, Oh, they always got the left-hand side on this one. If I can hit it this lap 30 seconds faster and I can go up the right-hand side, that's my move. That's my time. And cyclocross races are often won by a mere couple of seconds. <laughs> um, and it takes an entire race to figure out where the couple of seconds come from. Well, we could keep going forever, honestly. Uh, there's so much to talk about here. We've got uh, a wise Stephen Hyde with us today. But, Stephen, I want to put you on the spot. We do have to um, eventually end this conversation. I want you to try to encapsulate this episode, this discussion into 60 seconds. Give us the most poignant pieces of advice uh, from our discussion today, if you would. All right, I'm going to distill 60 seconds into five minutes now. <laughs> um, I, I honestly would say that our discussion really boils down to, and cyclocross in general, goes down to understanding where you really are as an athlete, what you bring to the table, and how to acquire skills that are necessary to really move the needle. Um, and that isn't always physiological work. Trevor, what would you have to say? Mine's going to be very similar, which is the importance of doing that skills work, uh, turn into games, do it with buddies. Uh, I, I love that we've heard multiple times now that you need to take it slow and, and really practice that skill as opposed to just feeling it's, it's another form of racing. But that to me is, is going to make a huge difference in cyclocross. And I can tell you from my own experience, I can't remember his name. They used to be called the tree trunks, the, the six oh, foot six. Trebone and Wicks, yeah. Yeah, so I, I can't remember which one it was, but one of them used to come to Cascades a lot to get his final form before the cross season. And I remember he and I were always about similar strengths. So I kind of went, oh, I think I could probably be a decent cross rider if I, I seem to have a similar engine. And then I did a cross race with him and he lapped me for the third time. I went, oh, there's a lot more than an engine involved here. <laughs> Uh, and that's the skills and they make or break cross racing. Chris. Well, I think I would actually end with something we didn't really talk about too much at all, but I think it's a, a necessary part of cyclocross to, in, in order to want to work on those skills and want to ride in these conditions and want to progress at this like Steven said, a sport that involves taking a bike that doesn't really belong on these surfaces and trying to, you know, quote unquote, master it. And that's just an attitude that you have to have to be good at cyclocross. You, you have to, you have to have some patience, um, or a lot of patience, I would say, especially if you're new to it and you want to get to, uh, Stephen Hyde's level, it's going to take a really, really long time. You, may, you probably will never get there, but you're going to spend a lot of time trying to get there and trying to improve. So patience, um, and and then that just that just that uh, ability to see the reward in 
and taking risks. Not to necessarily hurt yourself, but to find the edge of your limits. And once you get there, maybe question whether that's actually the limit or not and try to go a little farther and try to go a little farther. And I think, you know, again, not something we really talked about too much in the episode, but it's underlying everything in cyclocross from my point of view. Well, yeah, a pleasure uh, to have you on the show, Stephen. And yeah, we definitely want to have you back in the future. It was very insightful. Really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure, man. Yes, I really appreciate being here. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Stephen Hyde, Alec Donahue, Dr. William Adams, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>